The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Amen. Well, good morning. <clears throat> oh, let's try that again. Good morning. All right. I'm like, do we need to move back to 1030 so we all are awake here? What's going on? Come on. Come on. Well, good morning. Uh, hey, I just want to echo what Ricky said. This was obviously my first day camp. What a way to, to end my first month here in Morgan Hill. And man, it was just an incredible time. Um, and I echo, we are so thankful to the many of you, many I see here today. I don't really recognize you without your blue shirts on. So if you could please keep wearing, and the wigs, please keep wearing the wigs. Yeah. Um, but we are so thankful to the many of you who helped with your service, with your time. For the many of you who give generously to our church, it's opportunities like this is why we give right? And so that children can hear the gospel, not just so that lights can be turned on electricity, but so that people's lives can be changed. So thank you to the many of you who helped. And I want to also say welcome again to the kids who are here today, who are normally in the kids programming, um, the kindergarten to fifth graders who are here. We are excited you are here now, kids, especially those who are at day camp this week. I will probably not be as funny as Melody and Johan were this last week, all right? I will probably not be doing part of the message today in yodeling or in rap or other things. But I would encourage you, if you're, if you're not normally here, if you're a kid, just try and listen and come away with one thing today that you can tell your mom and your dad on the way home that you learned this morning from the Bible. Right? You may not be able to understand all of it or pay attention to anything, but try and get one thing that you can let your mom or dad know that you learned today as we look here at this story in John chapter six. We are continuing this morning that we are now in the middle. We're in our fourth week of a, of a seven-week series looking at the sign miracles in the gospel of John. These are miracles that aren't just primarily about displaying God's power, but revealing his character and showing us who he is. And if you have your Bibles this morning, would you open them, please, to the Gospel of John? That's the fourth book of your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Um, and we're going to be this morning in John chapter 6. The text for this morning is also found in the handout that you received when you came in this morning. This, uh, your little bit of Bible trivia about this passage that you can impress your friends with. Um, doesn't really have anything to do with the sermon, but I find it interesting, so I'll tell you anyways. This miracle that we're going to look at this morning is the only miracle in Jesus's ministry that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this miracle is the only one here. It is very likely a familiar story to many of us who have been around the church world for a while. But I pray that as we look afresh with new eyes this morning at it, that we would grasp insights into who Jesus is. We're going to look this morning at three insights into who Jesus is as he reveals himself this morning through this sign. So let's dive in. John chapter six, starting at verse one says this, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee which is the Sea of Tiberias. If you remember here last week, we looked and Jesus was in Jerusalem. So now we've moved geographical locations. We're back up in the Northern part of Israel along what is known as the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias. Verse two, a large crowd was following him because 
they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Remember, these are not believers per se. These are the people who want to see the amazing things that Jesus does. They're not here for the belief. They're here for the show. They want to see what's going on. Verse three, Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. We don't know specifically which mountain this is. This could have just been the mountainous area that it's referring to, the Sea of Galilee on either side, on the west and the east. Kind of familiar. There was large mountains on either side and it found itself in a valley. And so Jesus is in one of the mountainous areas off to the side, kind of getting away from them with his disciples. Verse four, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Now, the Passover, if you are not familiar with what the Passover is, maybe you've heard it, you've had friends talk about observing, but you're not quite sure what the Passover is. It is referring to the book or the events that happened in the biblical book of Exodus, which is the second book in the Bible. It's when Israel was enslaved by the Egyptians and then plagues were sent upon the Egyptians to allow them to go, but Pharaoh kept hardening his heart and refused to let the people of Israel go. The final plague that was sent was that the firstborn in each home would be killed, except those on which the blood of the lamb, as the instructions were given to all people, would be placed on the doorposts. And if you place the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, the angel of death passed over your home and you were saved. Thus the word Passover. And so they celebrated when, when they were saved on the Passover and then included with the Passover event is then Pharaoh released his people, the Israelites out of Egypt and they went on their way toward the promised land. So that's what the Passover is. This is a festival where they would continually remember this and it's celebrated every spring to this day. Passover is a continual celebration now for thousands of years as we remember what, what God did for his people there in Egypt. And it's important for us to realize, and we'll get into this more and more, and why it's important for us to know that the Passover happens right around the time of this miracle. Verse five, lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, we're gonna find out later, it's thousands of people. Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? The first insight that we see into Jesus in this passage, the first insight is Jesus provides for our needs. Jesus provides for our needs. In several of the accounts of this story, it says that Jesus, upon seeing the crowd, was filled or moved with compassion toward them. And he asked this question. See, Jesus sees and anticipates the needs of the crowd. Our God is a God who sees the needs of his people and a God who, as we're going to see, provides for the needs of his people as well. Now, it's important for us to realize when we think about a God who provides for our needs, that what I'm saying is God provides for our needs, not necessarily our wants. And it's important to know that distinction because oftentimes we say, well, God's not doing what I ask him to do because you're asking what you want of God, not necessarily what you need of God. Understanding needs versus wants is so important in understanding how God works. Now, I hate to break it to you kids, but your parents have told you this already and I'm going to agree with them. You don't need that new PS5. You really don't need it. You don't need the new Nintendo Switch. You may want it. You may desperately want it, but you don't need it. 
You don't need a new boss. You don't need someone else. Maybe you need a better attitude, right? It, it applies just as much to us as adults as it does to kids. We may say, I want something. And God says, what do you need? And get this, Jesus will often withhold what we want so we realize what we really need. Jesus often withholds our wants so that we get to what we truly need from him. But this moment comes, right? And the people are coming, they will be hungry. And that moment of crisis hits and it's about to hit here for the people and Jesus anticipates it. And so the question is, once again, will God provide for these people? Will God provide for them? They are here and they are going to be hungry. And that's why it's so important that right before we're told that it's the Passover season, that the Passover is about to come upon them. See, the Passover, this event in Israel's history, any time in scripture where the people wondered, is God a God who would provide for his people? Is he going to do it again? The pinnacle event in their history that they looked back to of God's provision for his people was the Passover, the Exodus taking them out of Israel. Over 20 times in the Old Testament, God says that he is the God who brought his people up out of Egypt. What he's saying is, hey, I've delivered you. I've provided over and over again. And it's not just right after it happens. In fact, over 750 years later, when the nation of Israel is again in exile and God speaks through his prophet Daniel, he calls himself the God who brought his people out of Egypt. It's as if hundreds of years later, God is saying, hey, I have provided for you for centuries. Trust that I will do it again. So the question Jesus is asking is a question of bread, but it's in a sense he's saying, hey, in this season where we celebrate God's provision, will Jesus be able to provide? It's hinting as to what will happen because we remember the Passover. We remember the past. And so it's hinting as to what Jesus is going to do. See, when we remember God's provision in our past, it assures us of God's provision for our present and for our future. When we remember in our lives, like they were called to do with the Passover, when we remember how God has shown himself faithful, has provided for our needs in only a way he could in the past, it gives us confidence in the present and as we walk into the future to trust that he will also provide. Now, Kristen and I are new here to Morgan Hill and it was quite a journey that God had us on to arrive here. And after we visited a few times this spring, we were convinced beyond a shadow of doubt, this is where God is calling us, calling our family. And so we enthusiastically said, yes, we want to go. And we started, you know, telling, announcing to friends that we're going to be moving across the country. And a lot of people asked the same question. Oh, well, that's great. Where are you going to live? And we would say, I don't know. Right? Where are you going to live? Well, it's a good thing that Morgan Hill is so cheap and the housing market is so low. And there are so many options just for families to move across. Yeah, right? And the, the hottest housing market. And what, how are you going to find a place to live? Sometimes it's turned to where to how. And we're like, well, we're convinced that God's called us here. So God will provide something, right? God will have to provide something because it doesn't really happen otherwise, right? And so 
we had, a, we had a house that we were talking to someone actually wasn't listed. So we thought, hey, maybe this is how God's going to allow us to rent and to move here. And on a Friday afternoon, I got an email from that person saying, hey, I'm sorry, but it's not gonna work for you to rent our house. That was a Friday afternoon. We're like, okay, that's not how God's going to provide for us. So on Saturday mid-morning, I get on the websites and I see a house that went up for rent that very morning in Morgan Hill. Pictures look nice. So I go and I ask the guy, hey, is this available? He says, yes, it is. The timeline works up to when we were planning to move. All the, okay, this is great. I fill out an application. He's like, all right, we'll be showing it tomorrow. So I'm like, all right, we'll have someone from church go and look at it tomorrow. I wake up, I check the website the next morning. In less than 24 hours, there's 12 people who have applied for rent at this home. I'm like, oh no. <laughs> okay, here we go. So we're like, well, all right, God, if, if you wanna provide, you're going to provide. And then Randy and Sandy Singley go over for us that afternoon and upon their recollection, they said it was like a show out there of all the people lined up trying to get in the house. The neighbors, no joke, were sitting on their lawn chairs just watching it unfold. <laughs> As the people were filing in and out. It's a Sunday afternoon with, with, with the time change. While they're there at the house, they FaceTime my wife because I'm preaching during the time that they're in the house. So I don't even get to see it. Kristen's there, they FaceTime, she meets the guides. All these people come in and out. I get home from church and I'm like, so how was the house? Kristen's like, I, I think it'll work for us. I think we should email them and let them know we're interested. I'm like, well, that's good. There's a lot of people. So we, we email them. I email them Sunday night. I said, hey, my wife said it was so nice to meet you over the phone. Um, we're definitely interested in the house. He said, well, if you're interested, email me right back. Have your wife fill out an application as well. Do all that credit check stuff. We do, we fill it out. 10 minutes later, he writes back, all right, the house is yours. We were like, wait, what? Friday, it fell through. Saturday, this is maybe an option. Sunday night, you don't have your place to live. How does that happen? Because God provides for our needs. He did in a way where it wasn't because of my connections or my skill or my, no, it was God doing something where he's like, I'm just gonna provide this for you because I wanna make it clear that this is where I'm leading you. Now, so often in life, we don't see, right? God clearly providing for us. But that's been a moment as there's been challenges and difficulty in my life and moving here, as those things have come up, it's one of those things that I can look back on saying, hey, listen, if God provided like this, God's gonna provide for everything else as well. I just wanna ask you, what are one or two moments in your life? The Israelites had the Passover. They could look back and say, God provides for us. What are one or two moments in your life where you can say, without a doubt, God showed up. God provided for me in a way that I could not have explained otherwise. It had to have been God who did it. Have one or two moments like that in your life. Because what happens is when the crisis comes, when the difficult circumstances hit us, the question arises again in our hearts, is God going to meet my needs? Is God going to provide? And what we need is to look back at how God always has provided for us. These people could look back to the Passover and Jesus asks this question leaning because he's saying, yes, I've always provided. Where in your life can you look back on God's provision in the past to give you assurance for God's provision for your present and for your future? God is a God who provides for our needs. So he asks this question to Philip. Verse six, it's a little insight. He said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do. 
Philip answered him. Now, why did he ask Philip? Philip is from Bethsaida, who is very close to the Sea of Galilee. Philip's the local boy. He's like, hey, Philip, you're from around here. Where are we going to get bread? Where are we going to go to eat? Philip's response, verse 7. 200 denarii. Denarii is a day's wages. It's a lot of money. 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Philip throws his hands up. He's like, Jesus, what do you want from me? If I took all of our money, which isn't even 200 denarii, and spent it, it wouldn't even be enough for everyone to get one single bite. Do you see how many people there are? Philip's like, Jesus, you're asking me to do something that can't be done. This is impossible for me to do. Why would you ask me this question? We can't do it. Verse eight, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. Little, little nugget to remind you that it's spring. Have you ever been to a place where in the spring it's nice and green and then the rest of the year it gets golden, not brown, right? Golden, yeah, right? So, so it's a little nugget to remind this is in the springtime, the hills are green. So the, man set, so the men set down about 5,000 in number. That's just the men. So scholars estimate there's probably about 20,000-ish people total here in the crowd. Picture half of Morgan Hill gathered together. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. The second insight we get into Jesus in this passage is that Jesus is not limited by our resources. Jesus is not limited by our resources. Now, this isn't specifically said here in the text, but I believe I'm on pretty solid ground in thinking this, all right? There was a boy who came forward with five barley loaves and two fish. I want to propose to you, I don't think that boy was the only person there who actually had a snack with him, all right? If there were 5,000 men gathered, and this was a time where there was arranged marriages, people would get married very young. If there are 5,000 adult men gathered, then there are thousands of moms gathered as well. You're telling me there's thousands of moms and all of them forgot snacks at home? Like if there's three moms there, you have an abundance of snacks. And you're telling me thousands of moms gathered together and didn't bring any snacks with them. I doubt it. I bet that there were some people there besides this boy who had some food. But he came forward and, and initiated, gave it to Andrew, who then brought it to Jesus. And he brings two fish. We shouldn't think of like some large, like he went in the ocean and caught. These are probably like sardine style, like nice, small, salted fish. Barley loaves were the food, the bread of the poor. The poorest of the poor ate barley loaves. This isn't some nice rye or, or sourdough. This is like, he's got a couple pieces of wonder bread that he had left. Kind of stale probably. It's the lowest of the low. It's the poor. He doesn't have much to offer. As the disciple asks, what are they for so many people? See, what stood out about this boy was not the extravagance of his gift. 
It was not this overwhelmingly large amount of food. What stood about this boy was two things. He was willing and available to be used by Jesus. He was willing and available to offer what he had to be used by Jesus. See, there were thousands of other people there, but he seems to be the only one who was willing to, use, to be used by God. See, the number one attribute of people who God uses are those who are willing and available to him. People who God uses are willing and available to be used by God. See, in, in so interesting, our responses and the people's responses throughout scripture, when God calls us to something. And so often our response when God calls us to something is a lot like the prophet Moses, who we already talked about with the Passover, like Moses's response when God called him. It's this astounding passage in the book of Exodus. God calls Moses, he appears to him in this burning bush. He's like, Moses, I want you to go. I want you to do this. And Moses is like, yeah, but what if they ask me who you are? What if they ask me your name? So God's like, well, I'll tell you. So he gives him some response. And Moses is like, but what if they say it really wasn't you who appeared to me? God responds and gives him. And Moses is like, yeah, but, but I can't really speak very good. God responds again, to which finally Moses is like, God, would you please just send someone else? God, it's like he's bargaining with God. He's like, God, please not me, please someone else. And so often that's our response to God. When God calls us, when opportunities arrive to be used, we often default to excuses. We make excuses to sit on the side, to sit by, to let opportunities go, and to not step into what God would call us to do. We say things like, well, I, I haven't been at that church long enough. I haven't gone to Bible college. I haven't studied the Bible for as long as other people had. I'm not qualified. I'm not as mature as others are. I, I, don't, I don't think I could do. We make excuses. And too often when it comes to serving God, we focus on a lack of our ability and we forget God's unlimited power. We focus on ourselves. See, I think oftentimes when it comes to serving God, it's a lot like becoming a parent for the first time. Now, our daughter is just a little over one year old. And so those are new and fresh memories for me still of people asking. And, and when, you're, when you're having your first child, parents, you probably remember this. People will come up and they'll ask you, are you ready? Are you ready? Which sometimes literally just means like, hey, you got like a crib and some diapers and some bottles, right? Like, are you physically ready? But then there's like that other question, like, are you prepared to be a dad? Are you prepared to be a mom? Because if you're a parent, you know your world drastically changes forever the moment that starts. Are you ready? Are you ready for that? I don't think anyone ever gets to the point where they go, oh yeah, I got it. I got everything I need. I'm gonna be the perfect parent. I got everything I need. No, you always sense when, there's, when people ask you that question, you always sense like, well, I don't know but ready or not, here it comes, right? Like, I don't know. I don't feel fully equipped. I don't feel fully ready, but I'm, I'm willing and I'm available. I'm gonna step into this thing that God is calling me to. I think often it's the same way when God calls on our lives. I think if God calls us to do something and we're like, oh, this is perfect. I feel totally adequate. I'm fully qualified for this. This is absolutely easy for me. Yes, God, I will do it. I don't think it ever really happens like that. I think when God calls us to things, often in our lives, it seems daunting. And it seems like, well, I don't really know how I could do that. 
I don't really know if that's for me. That seems overwhelming. That seems challenging. I don't really feel ready. See, what God wants from us isn't for us to think we're ready, but for us to be willing and available to be used by him. I love when God called the prophet Isaiah. He cried out and he said, whom will I send? Who will go for me? And Isaiah's response was, here I am, send me. It wasn't excuses. It was, here I am, send me. See, like this young boy who did not have much to offer to Jesus, he had the poorest five barley loaves, the poorest of the poor, a few small fish. But what Jesus took was the little that he had, but his willingness, Jesus took it and multiplied it and fed thousands of people with it. You may think what I have to offer to Jesus is not very much. But what Jesus can do with what you have to offer him may astound you beyond your wildest imagination. He doesn't just call those who feel like they have a lot to offer to others. He calls those of us who like this boy feel like, well, I just have a little bit. But God, if you wanna use this, if you wanna use the little you've given me for you, then yes, I will give it to you. The question for each of us today is, are you willing and available to be used by God in your life? Are you willing and available to be used? In this valley, there are tens of thousands of people who if they continue on the path they are living will spend eternity separated from Jesus. Are you willing and are you available to help do something about that? God loves them. He doesn't just love us. He loves them who aren't gathered here this morning. He loves them. He came, he died for them. And he asks us, are you willing and available to partner with me in doing something about the thousands of people who live right next door to us, who are our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates, our friends, our family who don't know Jesus? Are we willing and available to be used by him? The blessing of being able to be used by God always comes down to are we willing and available to be used by him? Stop selling yourself short. I don't have much to offer. The boy had very little. And in Jesus's hand, it turned into plenty. What you have to offer when Jesus takes it is plenty to provide for others. The question is, are you willing to serve wherever God would call you? He's not limited by our resources. Verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Verse 15, perceiving then that they're about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus senses this and he literally runs away and disappears into the mountain. The third insight into Jesus that this story gives us is that Jesus supersedes our agendas. Jesus supersedes our agendas. So how did, in verse 15, how did Jesus perceive this? What was going on that, that Jesus perceived the attitudes of the people towards him? We have a few hints throughout the passage. First, it was, as we've already talked about, it was the Passover season. This was a time, not only Passover, when they looked back at God's faithfulness, but it was naturally a time for them of nationalistic zeal. 
And they could have thought, hey, just as God took us out from under the hand of the Egyptians thousands of years ago, maybe God's gonna do it again to the Romans. He's gonna get us out of Roman rule. This is what God could do. Why does the author specifically mention John in verse 10 that there's 5,000 men? Because 5,000 men was an army. 5,000 men was a fighting force. You could do some damage with 5,000 strong, able-bodied men moving around one leader to attack Rome. You could do something with 5,000 men. That's why it singles out how many men there are. And then it says in verse 14 that he is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. What are they talking about there? They're referencing back to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18, where Moses, it says, God says about Moses, he says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, like Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command you. The people are like, this is the second coming of Moses. He's coming to take us away from the Romans. Someone make him king. And Jesus literally runs away from their political agendas that they have for him. They want to use Jesus for their own political gain. And Jesus will have none of it. He runs the other way. See, we still try to do this, don't we? Jesus won't fit into any political agenda for our use, but people still sure do try. And I'm not speaking this morning, if you're like, oh, he's talking about, I'm not speaking of one side or the other, because the reality is both sides in our country, you know, both sides do this. Both sides say, try and take Jesus, take his teaching, take who he is and say, then this is how we're going to use Jesus for our votes to get our people elected. Both sides do this. But the moment, the measure of who a true follower of Jesus is, is defined by their political affiliation, we've lost the way of Jesus. That is not the way of our Savior. And to those of you who are here this morning and you struggle with attending the church because you feel like it's just endorsing politicians and it's just a voting block, I'm sorry, that is not what Jesus came to do. That's not what he came to do. And we need to make sure in our lives that we are followers of the King Jesus and we don't take Jesus and try and manipulate him to fit the own agendas that we may have for our lives, for the political affiliations we have. A few reasons, I think, why, why we need to be careful that we don't do this as followers of Jesus. First, and I think very practically, it doesn't really bring the results that we think it brings. It doesn't actually bring the results we may think it does. Um, Just a few months ago, there was an article that came out in the journal of the Sociology of Religion. And these guys did a statistical analysis of 166 different countries over the last 10 years on which ones had the rise of Christianity and which nations Christianity was diminishing. And what they found is that in nations where where pluralism and persecution are present. So pluralism means that kind of every religion is out there. There's no incentive, follow whatever you would believe. Or persecution, so we're following Jesus actually brings persecution by the government. In countries that it's true of that, the message of Jesus is growing worldwide. The message of Jesus is growing in countries like that. Where by and large is the message of Jesus shrinking? It's in countries where Christianity has political power and privilege is where Christianity is actually shrinking in the world. 
And so those places where pluralism and persecution are present, the word of God is going forth and believers are coming. But when Jesus has been turned into a political agenda to achieve power, the church is actually shrinking. So it doesn't actually get the results that oftentimes we may want it to get. Secondly, why we need to make sure we don't do this is for what it says about our hearts. What it says about our hearts. See, if we replace Jesus with something else at the center of our hearts, a political agenda. It shows that we've replaced him as the core of our identity. If the Jesus we fashion begins to look exactly like a political candidate rather than our Lord and Savior to whom we bow the knee, it's because we've placed our identity in someone else other than Jesus. See, if our identity is placed in a political party, we'll adjust Jesus, then fit into our views and mold and shape him into our own likeness rather than submitting ourselves to him. And so it says about our hearts, if we're doing this, it says, hey, where are you really finding your value, your worth? Is it in Jesus alone or is it in something else? The third reason why we need to be careful that we don't fall victim to shaping Jesus into our own agenda is this, is that it distracts from Jesus's true mission. It distracts from Jesus's true mission. Now see, there would have been nothing intrinsically wrong if Jesus had come and overthrown the Roman government and had his Israel be no longer ruled over them. Because if you look through biblical history, God did that several different times, right? He freed them from the Egyptians. He's constantly delivering them from other nations. He brought them out of the hands of Babylon and back into the land. God has done this over and over again. Why does Jesus want nothing to do with this? Because that's not why Jesus came to this earth. He's saying, I did not come to this earth for a political mission. I came to restore humanity into right relationship with Jesus. And he will not be manipulated one way or the other because that's not why Jesus came. Friends, our loyalties do not lie to a political party. We are not just citizens of this state or this country. We are ultimately citizens of heaven. And that's where our true loyalty and allegiance lies. And so often in the church today and amongst so many Christians, maybe even here today, we've been distracted from the mission that Jesus has called all of us on because we've tried to shape Jesus into something else that we can use for our own agenda. This is not the way of Jesus, but he calls us into his true mission. Why did Jesus come to seek and to save the lost? That's why Jesus came. And we get this insight into his heart that he's not to be used as some figure to gain power and privilege where we would want. Now, Jesus is the one whom has all power. And rather than using his power, we're to submit to him. We're to bow our knees in reverence to Jesus. So he invites us in on this mission, not to use his name to get power or afford an agenda, but to champion what he's done for all people, that he's come to seek to save the lost, not to heal those who think they are fine, but to those who are broken and hurting, he's to help those. He's those who has come to bring dead things to life, to save us. That's the mission of Jesus. That's why he came. God, we do thank you that you have come into the world. God, and that you performed miracles like this. God, we thank you for your miraculous displays of power that show 
your true intentions and who you truly are. God, I pray that we would be like this young boy, willing and available to be used by you. God, that this church, this city, this valley would be changed because a few of us here this morning would say, I don't know if what I have is a lot, but what I have, I wanna give to you, God. Would that be the posture of our hearts? God, would we see your mission of bringing people into vital relationship with you go forward from this place and change hearts, change lives for eternity? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.